Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to episode number 19 of season three of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Well, this week, folks, we're talking recovery, and I'm excited to be sitting down with Christy Ashwanden, former lead science writer at 538 and health columnist for the Washington Post. Her writing has appeared in Outside Magazine, Discover, Smithsonian, and O, the Oprah Magazine. Christy has recently completed her new book, Good to Go, all about the science and the pseudoscience out there on the topic of recovery. In this episode, Christy shares her insights on icing, inflammation, and recovery. If the hype on cryotherapy holds up to the evidence, and the key role of placebo in recovery. She'll also talk about the importance and impacts of rituals in sports, big data and how it impacts recovery and recovery metrics, how life stress plays a fundamental role in recovery, as well as the new application of periodized recovery. What is it, how it works, and much, much more. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you are interested in more on the topic of recovery, then please circle back to season one episode, uh, excuse me, season three, episode one with Dr. Daniel Owens, all about exercise induced muscle damage and nutritional strategies to offset that, as well as season two, episode number 25 with the Sacramento Kings head strength coach, Dr. Ramsey Nijem on workload monitoring and player development in the NBA. Of course, if you're looking for a deeper dive on the nutrition side of things for recovery, I've devoted a whole section, three full chapters to it in my new book, Peak, which is coming out May 24th. What are the experts saying about Peak? Well, renowned strength coach Mike Robertson from Robertson Training Systems recently said, quite simply, if you want to better understand the numerous ways you can positively impact your athletes, Peak is a must read. You can pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, or your local booksellers. And of course, you can check out more information and expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. Terrific. Before we get rolling, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. And Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. On to the show, let's do this Season 3, Episode 19 with Christy Ashwanden, author of Good to Go. Enjoy. My guest today is Christy Ashwanden, the former lead science writer at 538 and former health columnist for the Washington Post, a finalist for the National Magazine Award 
Her writing has appeared in Outside, Discover, Smithsonian, and O, the Oprah Magazine. She was a high school state champion in the 1600-meter run, a national collegiate cycling champion, and an elite cross-country skier with Team Rossingo. She lives and occasionally still races in western Colorado. Christy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Listen, I can't wait to dive into all things recovery here, uh, but maybe before we jump in, you can give folks a little bit more of your background and your journey to uh, your, where you are today. Sure. So I started off as a runner. I've kind of been a lifelong runner, I guess I'd say. It was my first sport. I started in high school. I actually, I'm, I'm relatively tall for, for a girl, and so I went out for the volleyball team because that's what tall girls did. Sure. And it turned out I was terrible at volleyball. I didn't even, I couldn't even make like the, the D team. So I went out for the cross country team because they took everyone, and it turned out that's sort of how I found out that I was a good runner. And so I went to University of Colorado to run track and cross country there and got injured my first year. And while I was redshirting the first track season, I started cycling and also cross country skiing. And the next thing I knew, I was doing those sports as well. So it's been a little bit of a journey. I I was a pretty serious bike racer for a bit. And then uh, cross country skiing is the thing that I've probably done at the most elite level. I um, lived over in Europe for a while, uh, racing over there, also across North America with the Rosignal team. Um, something I still do here and there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my background. And um, yeah, my, my interest in recovery really stems from my own athletic experience. When I look back on my athletic career, I realized that recovery is the one thing that I never quite managed to get right. And looking back, I can see that um, you know, it was something that sort of limited uh, you know, my ability to reach my potential. There were so many times when so many seasons where I thought, oh, I just had really bad luck. I happened to get sick or injured, you know, right as I was getting fit. And in retrospect, I can say, I can see that it was like, it wasn't just bad luck. It was me, you know, not giving myself enough recovery time or, or sort of trying to wish myself well when I had an injury and, and sort of being impatient. <laughs> That's terrific. And you have so many great stories in the book. And course you open the book talking about the Garfield grumble and your battle yeah. with domes right delayed onset <laughs> muscle soreness so maybe can you share a little bit of that with listeners to kick off this conversation on uh, recovery yeah so I guess I should say what I've learned is that when researchers want to study delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS in the lab what they do is they make people run downhill or sometimes they'll have them do sort of box jumps in reverse so they jump down and and so it's eccentric um, contraction in your muscles that really gives you the worst cases of this and this is like so downhill running where your leg is extending but also flexing it's like when you're doing an arm curl it's like the uh, lowering of the bar versus the the um, raising of it these are things that make you really really sore and so the Scarfield grumble race that I've done I, a smarter person would have like my husband for instance would have realized after the first time that wow that's kind of a dumb race I don't want to do that again but I've done it like five or six times and, nice. um, the race uh, starts off by climbing 2,000 feet in two miles which is you know it's, it's steep enough that you can you know be helped by using your hands in spots um, but then it, it drops down the backside of the mountain very steeply. And so after the first time I did this race, I literally could not walk the next day. I was so sore um, from that downhill running. And this really got me thinking a lot about delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, But more than that, it got me thinking about beer because one of the traditions at this race is that at the end, well, first of all, the finish line is a fire pit that you have to jump over in order to finish, which is kind of fun. 
Um, but then there's a nice refreshing aid station at the end with some refreshing cold beers. And, um, you know, I started wondering whether the beer might have something to do uh, with the soreness. Of course, in retrospect, I also realized that, like, you know, the soreness is really coming from the downhill running. But the question here, I think that alcohol is a little bit like coffee and that, you know, it's it's a little bit mind-altering. It's very pleasant. And so we sort of have this sneaking suspicion that it might be bad for us, even as we, like, secretly hope that it's good for us. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I sort of – sorry about that question. I know I'm not, I'm not the only one who has this question because, you know, it's become pretty common – you know, I see this at races a lot where there's a beer tent um, and this is, you know, ski races, running races, bike races, um, cyclocross races, et cetera. So, um, yeah, this, this is something that I'm, I'm not the only one who's doing this. Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, especially on the beer front recently, the Olympics, the German Olympic team, you know, which you touch on in the book as well, this mm-hmm. idea of, of consuming non-alcoholic or very low alcohol beer that's a rehydrating strategy, which is, you know, if we kind of shift gears here to the hydration side yeah. of things. Um, and you did a little experiment on this as well to try to answer that question that you just posed there. Everyone is really yeah. hoping that we're going to get some, uh, whether it's the polyphenols in beer or some kind of rehydration benefit. So can you tell us a bit about how beer was stacking up as a recovery drink? Yeah, sure. So I start this, the book with, you know, the first chapter is is about this beer and running question. And then the study that I did, I teamed up with some really good researchers at Colorado Mesa University out here in Western Colorado. And we, you know, tried to answer this question, is beer, you know, good or bad for recovery? Like, does it impair recovery or could it even enhance it? And so we set up this study to try and study, you know, to answer this question. And what I really learned from the study is that it's much easier to get a result than it is to get an answer. And so what ended up happening is we did the study, we got some results. They were actually really enticing. And I have to say they were particularly enticing for me because uh, the results showed we had five men and five women in the study, um, which is a very small, I just want to point out, this is an extremely small study but studies of this size are very, very common in this field, which is which is kind of a problem. And it's something that there's actually a movement underway now in sports science, this group called STORC. It's an acronym for something I won't go into um, that's trying to sort of increase some of the rigor and methodologies in this field. But anyway, back to our study, we had uh, two groups, men and women, and it turned out our results showed that women seemed to do better um, after drinking beer. So in other words, you know, when they drank beer after the hard run the next day, they, they performed better after having the beer, whereas men, on the other hand, were exactly the opposite. And it was for both, uh, women were about 20% better and men were about 20% worse, you know, the day after they had oh, recovered with the beer. And so yeah, for me, this was, this was like exactly what I wanted to hear, right? Because it's like, okay, beer is great for me. I can tell my husband, mm. you know, sorry, you're the designated driver. This is science speaking. <laughs> Um, but there was just one problem, which was I just, I couldn't believe it. And the reason I couldn't believe it is I was part of the study in addition to be, you know, having been in on the, on some of the planning and whatnot. And that's because I realized in the course of participating in the study that there were all these little factors and little issues that, that sort of weighted the results. And um, I'll just give you an example. So the one of the, the tests that we found this difference in um, was something called a run to exhaustion, where you're basically on a treadmill running um, at a, a pace, in this case, about 80% of your VO2 max. So it's a pretty hard pace, but it's not all out. And you just basically have to do that as long as you can. And at some point, this sort of becomes a test of like, how committed are you to the study? Um, just want to tap out pleasant. just for the sake of it, yeah. 
yeah, none of us are getting paid. Like there aren't really good incentives to keep going. But the other really big problem that I found, and this was something that was true throughout all of these, you know, I read hundreds, perhaps as many as a thousand research papers and studies while researching this book. And what I found is that you know, even in studies like ours that where there is the best intention to be double blind and placebo controlled, it's really, really hard to, to like this, you know, to keep participants from knowing when they're getting the real beer versus the placebo beer. So mm-hmm. like our placebo condition, every runner did the, the study twice under two conditions. One was where they got the actual beer and the other was when they got a non-alcoholic beer. And, you know, everyone could figure out which which condition they were in. And so, you know, it's really hard. And so there is definitely incentive. You know, at some point you have to decide, you know, how you're going to go. And if you're expecting that the beer is going to make you worse, then maybe that sort of license to quit early. On the other hand, you know, you could imagine the reverse. There were some other issues. I mean, I describe this in much greater detail in the book. But I think the takeaway here is um, it just sort of sheds light on the fact that although science is the most powerful tool that we have for understanding the world, and I, I truly believe that, I mean, it's the most reliable way we have of studying these things and understanding them, um, it's an a incremental process. And it's really hard to answer even a simple question with a single study. And it's really science is an iterative process. And you really need um, multiple studies under different conditions and sort of looking at, you know, at the end of the study, you need to say, okay, we have this result, how could it be wrong? And what are some ways we need to study it again to sort of address those, those issues or those potential problems? And so, um, you know, I think what I came away with was a little bit more skepticism for studies and not skepticism for science, but just, um, you know, a little more skepticism when someone says, okay, there's a study that shows this and therefore that's the truth that we know that this thing works. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit more apprehensive and a little reluctant to believe it until I see, you know, more than even a couple studies. (laughs) Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's definitely something that, uh, obviously studies in sports medicine are, 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 difficult to do in terms of recruiting the numbers. And as you mentioned, it, it yeah. brings in that problem with, with really being able to power these things. And of course, something that's been traditionally used for decades and decades and decades is, is icing, which is, you know, a staple mm-hmm. today still in, in performance circles. And, yeah. you know, you talk about the, the, the rice protocol, which is obviously, uh, you know, rest elevation, compression mm-hmm. ice, um, popularized by Gabe Merkin. And, you know, many years later, as as you mentioned there, the scientific process, new research is coming out, and, and he's you know, changed, his, changed his mind on the impact of, of icing and how it impacts cytokines, inflammation. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So this is one of those things, too, that when you really start to think about it from just a physiological perspective, you realize, huh, like this didn't ever really make a ton of sense. So the idea here with icing is that you're reducing inflammation and that you're somehow going to, um, you know, address inflammation and reduce swelling and all this stuff. But what ends up happening, so the, the aspect in which I say, well, it doesn't really make any sense when you think about it, is that icing doesn't actually eliminate inflammation. It it merely delays it, and so you're sort of when you ice something, um, it reduces blood flow to that area. So the blood flow stops, but that just sort of delays the inevitable. But it also turns out that you actually don't want to delay this because although we've been told again and again that inflammation is bad, and there are contexts in which it is, you know, this stuff is complex. 
But in, in terms of uh, soreness and things like this and for recovery, and not just recovery, you know, one important aspect of recovery for sports is adaptation. And in order to get that ad- adaptation, you need the inflammatory process. I mean, I- inflammation is part of your body's way of healing. And so what you're doing when you're reducing inflammation or trying to stop it is you're actually like, you know, blocking the healing process, which is exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that uh, signals versus noise, that idea that uh, these are essential signals in the body that trigger, as you mentioned, the adaptations. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's tricky when people are even explaining science because we tend to lean on these, this is good, this is bad, as maybe an introductory right. way to explain things. But then it, it ends up biting uh, people later on because, it, yeah, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, it really isn't that. It's so complex and, and so nuanced. Um and if we- it really is. It really is. And I think that, you know, I think that we need to get away from this black and white thinking, too. I mean, the world sure. is a complex place. And particularly human physiology is extremely complex. And so when you're being given very simple answers, there's a good chance that even if they're right, they're oversimplified. And sometimes that oversimplification could really send us in the wrong direction. 100%. And this is definitely where, you know, we get into new developments, novelty. Some of the technology is can be tremendous for supporting performance, for supporting recovery. Sometimes it's just a fad that comes and goes. If we continue down this sort of Cold War rabbit hole here and talk cryotherapy, um, I've had it done before, uh, but I'd like to hear about, a little bit about your experience, which you share in the book, and some of the claims made by manufacturers and, and what you found in the research. Yeah, so cryotherapy is something that's really become trendy. Um, you know, it, it's, it seems really powerful. I, I have a whole chapter in the book about placebos. And one of the takeaways, I mean, it's a very well established that placebos that are painful or unpleasant are more powerful than ones that, that are painless or, or, you know, inert. And so um, I think that that may be part of the appeal here is that, it, you know, you get really cold and it's kind of painful. So you can really tell that it's working. Um, but this stuff, there's a lot of claims made. In fact, the place that I went, I recount this in the book, the, the owner of this cryotherapy uh, place that I went to was telling me that this was going to super oxygenate my blood and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these like really ridiculous claims. And, you know, they seemed pretty ridiculous to me, but when I ran them by, you know, some actual experts in human physiology, they sort of, they literally laughed at me and said, you know, really, they, they said, what, um, so the idea here is it's sort of like super icing. Um, you're standing in this vat, basically, standing naked, by the way, in this vat, this steel vat, and then they release this liquid nitrogen, which is very cold. So it basically feels like standing naked in a snowstorm. But what's really interesting here um, is that you end up getting less cold than you would in a cold bath. And some of this is basic physics, right? Like uh, water is, is a better insulator and, and sort of you know, it... it um, conveys the the cold to your muscles better than air does and so you actually there are some studies showing that you know in terms of uh, skin temperature and muscle temperature it's actually colder to do the ice bath but again this goes back to this idea of if, if you're doing this in hopes of reducing inflammation that's really not what you want to be doing in the first place. But I will say, you know, having tried it, I can sort of understand the appeal. I mean, it really gives you this this nice adrenaline rush. I mean, I came out of there feeling like I wanted to kick some butt. And so, I, you know, I, I could see why people like it. 
Yeah, it's um, it is interesting that idea around the cold baths. You know, the same core temperature as you would get from cryotherapy, although not quite the wow factor of the minus two hundred. Yeah, you know, right. That you right. that you see register there, and and it is interesting. Obviously, and you touch on this as well, I believe, in the book is just that compliance factor of, you know, yeah. even at the elite level in terms of some some performance teams and, and professional sport using cryotherapy because it's you know a lot easier to get a guy to go in for two or three minutes than jump in the ice bath for for 12 or 15 although you know in some sports it's more that uh culture to to kind of yeah get grin and bear it and get through it so it it, it is uh interesting to see the different dynamics in different sports absolutely and i think so much of this is cultural too and there are rituals that are just part of sport you know one of the ones that i talk about in the book is stretching you know when i was in in high school I was captain of the track team and we had every day before practice we had this whole ritual it was probably like 15 minutes of stretching that we did and it was like you did this stretch and then you did that stretch and it wasn't just you know at the time we were being told this was going to make us less sore and you had to do it was supposed to be part of our warm-up and and all this and now I know you know there's not good evidence that it helps with soreness or even reduces injury which was a surprise to me um but you know, these things become so ritualized and they've become so much a part of like what we do and what we think is expected. And I can see how there's some benefit to that in some instances. So for instance, you know, in this high school situation, it was sort of a team bonding experience. We're all together doing the same thing. It was a time when we could sort of chat and, and socialize and, you know, that has other benefits. Um, the, the stretching itself probably wasn't doing us any good, um, but it, it was something that we could do together, and it was a way of sort of coming together as a team before we, we got out there on the track. It is amazing, isn't it? The um, Yeah, some of that dedicated time for human interaction, decompressing, yeah. sharing stories, whether it's you know the hot or cold tub or stretching, um, how much that's impacting. If you talk about confounding factors when people are doing mm-hmm. studies, that's definitely probably one of them. Um, and of course, you touched on this idea of, of when we're doing certain strategies. And um, mm-hmm. you know, this past summer, I had the pleasure of uh, listening to Dr. Shona Howlson uh, from the Australian Institute mm-hmm. of Sport present at the uh, Human Performance Conference at University of Notre Dame. And of course, she shared yeah. some of her insights on periodized yeah. recovery, uh, which you do a great job of covering in the book. Could you just define for folks periodized recovery and share some of the insights that you uh, learned from Dr. Howlson? Yeah, for sure. She's great. In fact, she appears repeatedly. She's kind of one of the stars of my book, I'd say. Yeah, she's terrific. Uh, really a leading, world-leading expert on recovery, which is why I interviewed her numerous, multiple times, and she appears in the book. Um, but so one of these ideas here that she's really done a lot on is this idea of period, periodized recovery in the same way that we do period periodized training. So just as, you know, during the early season um, of sport, you're really trying to put a base down and, and um, you know, if you're in an endurance sport like like me, you're getting your base miles and things like that. Um, so here, the idea is that with recovery, you want that recovery, those recovery things that you're doing to address sort of the state of training that you're in. So in the early season, um, outside of the competition season, what you're really trying to do is force adaptations. And so in those instances, you don't really want to do anything that's going to do anything to harm or slow adaptations, which means you really don't want to be doing icing or doing, you know, you don't want to be taking anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen indiscriminately because these are things that interfere with inflammation and that interferes with your adaptation and your adaptive process. It interferes with the healing of this micro damage that happens in your muscles when you exercise hard. 
on the other hand, in the middle of competition, and particularly in the middle of, you know, if you are in a sport like swimming or track and field, or even something like CrossFit, where you're doing multiple events in very short order, um, it may be that, you know, your, your short-term goal there is just to feel better in the short term. And you don't really care about adaptations because you're just going to perform again. You don't care about, you know, how you're doing two weeks from now. You want to be feeling good here, good here now. And that's an instance where icing might still be appropriate because although, uh, you know, it may reduce some of your adaptations later on, it might make you feel a little bit better. In the meantime, I mean, icing is a really good sort of numbing agent. And so it can reduce pain. And um, in an instance where you have to go again in, in, you know, a few minutes or an hour or two, it can still be an appropriate response. And so um, she's really advocating for this uh, periodized approach where you're in the same way that you do with training, sort of thinking about, okay, what is my objective for this training session? What am I trying to get out of it? The same sort of goes for recovery. You know, am I trying to make myself feel better to perform tomorrow or am I making myself feel better to perform in an hour? Am I in a stage in my training where I don't really care about performance in the next few days or even few weeks, but I'm really looking for the long-term adaptations? And, you know, in those cases, you, you sort of want to adapt your recovery strategies appropriately. 100%. And it yeah, definitely gets back to that conversation around adaptation versus optimization and those periods when we're yeah. trying to adapt, as you mentioned, allowing that inflammatory process to, to do its job, to trigger those adaptations. Um, you see that similarly on the nutrition front as well when people decide to start taking supplementing with, with more polyphenols or more agents that are actually going to blunt that, that beneficial response. And of course, different when you're, when you're really optimizing and peaking for competition or trying to perform again and again. Obviously, you see that in the NBA with the ice around the knees after games, trying yeah, to play all those yeah, games right. in one week. So it's a, yeah. it's a fascinating uh, discussion there. And if, if we shift gears a little bit and talk training data, because obviously you dive into the, mm-hmm. the analytics and metrics on this side of things, and it's been a massive surge, obviously, in the last decade or more uh, in sport around big data. It's, yeah. defi- it's definitely led to some you know new and groundbreaking insights, but just like this recovery story, there's a lot of nuance amongst all those numbers. So can you talk a bit about you know the, that obsession with training data that, that for some people can be a little bit counterproductive? Yeah, absolutely. I have a whole chapter in the book about data and and sort of the search for the magic metric that will tell everything about recovery. And, you know, I think in the end, one of the things we've learned, and look, I'm a data geek, I'm a data journalist, you know, numbers are my my jam, right? Like, <laughs> I'm very interested in, in data. Um, but I think it's it's interesting to note that there are limits to it. And you really have to ask, you know, when you're amassing data, you really have to ask, what am I trying to learn here? What is the question that I this data is going to answer for me and how how will what I'm doing change? You know, we have so many instances now where we're just sort of mindlessly collecting data without thinking hard ahead of time what we're intending to do with it or how it will change um, the way that we're training or that we're recovering or what, what we're doing to support um, our athletics. And so you, you end up with all these numbers that don't really mean anything or aren't telling you anything new. And uh, I describe some situations in the book where this can even become counterproductive, where you know, the numbers are telling you things that may be counter to how you're feeling. So there, in fact, there's a, an anecdote in the book about a, a person who goes into the sleep lab insisting that 
you know, she's not sleeping enough and she's having troubled sleep because this sleep tracker that she's wearing has been telling her so. And she goes in and it turns out she's sleeping fine, but is sort of refusing to, to trust how she's feeling and, and these sort of qualitative uh, measures because we've just, we've come to believe that the number on the watch is sort of the, the ultimate answer. And I think what we're coming to understand is that um, that's not usually the case. And in fact, with when it comes to recovery, uh, the very best measures that we have are actually qualitative. So they're things like, how are you feeling? And they're things like, this is was really a surprise to me, but mood is actually one of the best predictors of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're really on the edge and you're overtrained or on the verge of being overtrained or even in a period where you're training really heavily sort of by design and you know you're going to be a little bit overreaching um, you tend to be testy moody maybe even a little bit depressed and and that's a sign that's your body telling you like eh, I'm tired like you know and it's good to learn to listen to that yeah it's definitely um amazing i guess the complexity of the body that coming back to some of these qualitative things you know our, our brains and intuition can be incredibly powerful um yeah just as well as the or better than as you mentioned than the, the latest technology i i recently had dr Corey peacock on who's a performance coach for um, kamaru usman who's the mma just won the mma welterweight championship and as you mentioned there, he, he was kept showing reds for all these assessments. And so the coach just decided not to, you know, was, there's no point in showing him anymore because it's creating more stress than it's actually providing in terms of support. So it was, uh, you know, it's, it's, you definitely have to be a, a little bit vigilant with these things. And oftentimes it's nice to work with a coach or somebody else so that, the, you know, the, the athlete doesn't take on board too much of the, uh, too much stress from these things. So the stress of life is also another, you know, big input into an athlete's total stress load. I've had some conversations with uh, guys like Lachlan Penfold, formerly the NBA's uh, Golden State Warriors performance director, on how you know mental stress, emotional stress, is a major component of this recovery process. And you know, in the book, you dive into meditation, the various apps and technologies that have become staples for for a lot of athletes and, and in a lot of locker rooms. Can you talk about some of the things you found and some of the nuances with some of these devices? Sure. Um, you know. So often we think of recovery, we're thinking about workout and the training and the, the exercise itself, but those other things that we just call, tend to think of as stress, emotional stress, you know, things going on at work or at home, these are just as important and, you know, to your body, you know, stress, whether it's coming from exercise or it's coming from stressful events in your life, and so... If you really want to optimize recovery, you have to find a way to address stress. You define stress reduction techniques and I think every athlete needs to find some kind of sustainable, you know, daily method for dealing with and handling stress. And I describe a lot of different approaches in the book, and I think that the important thing here is not that there's one thing or another, it's like the key, it's that, you know, each athlete finds that thing for them, you know, whether it's meditation um, maybe it's, you know, it can be a hot shower, it can be a walk around the block. Me, you know, for me, walking my dog in the morning is kind of one way I use to unwind and to sort of check in on how I'm feeling and to, you know, also be checked out of all the things in my life. It's really pleasant, enjoyable, and just having some sort of ritual in your life that helps you stress is just extremely important and it's part of the recovery process. It's amazing all the different modalities, recovery modalities that you obviously explored and, and dive into deeply. 
uh, in your research and in the book. So obviously, I'm curious for yourself in terms of how uh, you know this this whole journey has influenced your recovery process. Are there certain things that you've added in, and others that maybe you've uh, tossed aside? Yeah. But I think one of the big takeaways or one of the, the ways that I've changed my own approach is to sort of give recovery our respect and to really not push things quite so much and to recognize that sometimes the best way to do more is actually by doing less. But I've come to understand that if you're not prioritizing and you're not making it you know, as non-negotiable as your workout, um, you're really missing an opportunity. I mean, one of the things I'm searching this book is that Sleep really is the most powerful recovery tool known. Nothing else even comes close. And so really, it's important thing that any athlete do for recovery is to sleep well and to sleep regularly and to make sure that your body's getting that rest that it needs. Yeah, it's amazing that maybe if it wasn't free, people would uh, prioritize yeah. it and uh, and dive into it a little more. But no, it is, it is amazing. It's definitely uh, really important in this day and age of connectivity, which is tremendous for things like this, but where do you think in terms of the evolution of research in the area of recovery, where do you think things will be going in the next sort of five or 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure that researchers and marketers will find new products and modalities to help people recover, but I really don't see the fundamentals of recovery changing too much in the next decade or so. I mean, really, the basic message here is that you really need to slow down and give yourself some time to relax, and I think that's going to continue to hold. You know, a lot of the things that are used to expedite recovery, what I learned is that they're really just things for you to do while you wait for your body to do the work that makes recovery happen. And so... Although we will surely learn some new details about how some of these modalities work, or in some cases how they don't, I think it's unlikely that the basics will change. Christy, I really appreciate you carving out some time today. You know, where can people uh, pick up the book and where can people stay connected with all your terrific work? People who want to find out more about my book can go to goodtogobook.com, um, and that has information about purchasing it online or preferentially from your local independent bookstore. You can also find out more about me and about my podcast, which is called Emerging Form, um, and also my speaking schedule on my website, which is christyashwanden.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E-A-S-C-H-W-A-N-D-E-N.com. Really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Oh, amazing. Well, definitely, yeah, include those links um, and links in the book here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Christy, for carving out the time. And thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Christy or want to leave a comment on today's episode, definitely love to hear from you. Reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. Of course, if you enjoyed the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Of course, you can also send out a tweet, post on Facebook, or add to your Instagram story some of Christy's phenomenal insights here today. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.